welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to 1% Better and delighted to have you along. Whether you're new or a return listener, it's great that you're here. Just a quick one. Thanks so much to all of you that have been listening for the last month or two. Well, forever really, but the last month or two in particular, May has been the record number of downloads for the show so far since I started in 2017, maybe March. So three years and a bit in, and the last month has been uh, the, the most downloaded so far, which is great, into the multiple thousands. And while I'm doing this as a passion project and a learning and, and obviously something that others learn from, the more people that check it out, the more hopefully value they're getting, the more one percent better they're getting as well and it just makes it all worthwhile it makes things feel good that uh, people are getting something from it so thanks so much for doing that continue to do so continue to share it out and with the kind of new flavors of the show there's one percent better obviously this episode is the, the main show there's the Tuesday night book club which i'm starting to share out uh, as we go that's something different and the me myself and ei around emotional intelligence getting good feedback on that it's all in one place around emotional intelligence, some content that folks can take something from. So it's all there and it's all a bit uh, different. The strategy is developing and it's fun. And as long as you're getting something from it, it will continue. And as long as I can fit it into my life uh, without breaking, I'll continue to do it as well. And on to this week's episode. It is with a gentleman called Kareem Narani. He is an entrepreneur, an investor, and chief strategy officer at a company called Link2. So he's a serial entrepreneur, and I haven't interviewed somebody that is in the investing game before. So I naturally had a lot of questions that I would like to have answers to, to better inform me, to make me 1% better around investing, and definitely came away with some really good answers, some really good insights that made me more informed. And if you're like me, you will definitely get something from this one as well. Kareem is a storyteller. He has a very interesting background growing up in Kenya. Life was a struggle in the early days as he talks about himself. So it kind of pushed him forward, made him value money, value success even more maybe than somebody that may not have had such a difficult, challenging start. And he has such a powerful, energetic, infectious personality. I'm sure you will really enjoy listening to him. I've tried to get useful information around how how one can become an investor, the different types of investor, and how investing is now in this post or still going through the COVID-19 challenging times that we're in. And Kareem shares insights around that. He has a regular virtual investing seminars that I will share a link to the latest one in this episode. I'm not sure on the exact date that this is going out, so I'm not sure the exact next date for that to happen. As he says himself at the end, if anyone has any questions for him, follow up with him. I've shared his LinkedIn details. Might be something for you to check out. So without me going on any longer, I will leave that one there. I will hand this over to Kareem Narani to talk about his career, his life, and investing. Enjoy, folks, and good luck. Hey, folks, welcome to this week's episode of 1% Better. And I am talking to a gentleman on the west coast of the US right now, 
similar scenario to me in that we're both living our, our life in, in our homes at the moment, but that's okay. Um, his name is Kareem Nurani, and he is an entrepreneur, an investor, and also at the moment, Chief Strategy Officer at Link2. Kareem, welcome to 1% Better. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me here today. Delighted to have you on. Looking forward to our conversation and learning about you and I guess some of the, the things that, that make up you. And one of them is, as I mentioned in the intro, you're an investor. And that's something I think on all the episodes I've done, I've not really inter- interviewed somebody that would be classified as a, an investor. So i really like to know a bit about how you became an investor. Talk to me about that story um, and we'll take it from there. All right, thank you, Rob. But uh, before we go straight into that, I'd like to commend you on your name, 1% Better. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing when we think about that name and we try to be 1% better. If we look at it in the holistic sense, if we all try to be 1% better every day, can you imagine what that would mean? It would mean that we were phenomenal people uh, in a year. So uh, that's a beautiful name. Thank you. Uh, and good job. There's, there's a lot of stories behind that. And I think the best way I say is because some people would say, well, if you if I listen to 100 of your episodes, would I be 100 percent better? And I was like, yeah. well, it's all in different ways. So the goal with this one is maybe to make people 1 percent better in, in with, with a, a lens of investing, you know, for whatever view they have before they might that be that little bit better and obviously better informed about you. So over to you, Kareem. Thank you. Um, so. So being an investor is is a double edged sword. You know, you you think it's a great thing, and in in some cases, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And I'm blessed to be able to do this. Uh, <clears throat> but it took a long time to get here, and uh, the trials and tri- tribulations of being at this stage where I can uh, uh, help it, um, early stage founders with some of their uh, requirements for funding, um, I do it uh, if it is something that. I believe in and am passionate about, but it took a long, 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 long time to get here. A little bit of my background and how this happened is is relevant because um, I, I was uh, I was born in Kenya. Uh, uh, I'm not going to give away how how many years ago, but a long time ago, um, slightly uh, slightly after independence, and that'll give you a clue. Uh, and I was uh, I'm a son of immigrant. Uh, parents who moved from India. So it's always been uh, growing up in an environment where we're, the blood is always looking for something different, something to improve our lives. My uh, grandfather was in, moved from India uh, to Kenya as a stowaway on a ship and uh, tried to build his life. And he was 14 when he moved there. And I grew up in a family that was always trying to survive. What do we do next? What do we do next to be able to survive um, the next month. So uh, it's never coming from a background of, of, a, of wealth, uh, but of struggle. And uh, so in terms of that, I, I was educated in Kenya right through my high school days and ended up in, um, in Vancouver, British Columbia for my university days. Just, just before you get onto that, Karim, and I'm always fascinated about that early stage in life and the challenges you're faced and I've talked to lots of people and you know you're an entrepreneur as well as an investor do you feel growing up in that scenario an environment where your you know family is struggling month to month that it almost makes you become almost entrepreneurial uh looking for ways of, of kind of 
making some money just getting by do you did you take that from your family just wonder maybe is there an inspiration for that in that yeah so that's that's an interesting question and it's always a challenging question can you build an entrepreneur can you create an entrepreneur are you an entrepreneur at birth uh, and what drives someone to to an entrepreneurial background and i would say this that uh yes in the early days it was always necessary to earn a steady income a steady paycheck and and that what that's what needs to to get done and obviously you you know all of us growing up have certain needs uh, and certain responsibilities that we need to to focus on and that is actually getting a job and earning a steady paycheck but as i was growing up as i did this uh, there seems to be was it a bubbling excitement within me anytime i saw something that was interesting exciting that i wasn't doing it was like hey how do i build that how do i do this differently even the the companies i was working with it was like always looking at the environment and saying if i changed this or if i changed operationally this or if i changed my approach to something would that make the company better um so as i was growing up i started to understand that yeah i have to do some certain things on a regular day-to-day basis but there was always this excitement of being able to change things or create things uh, that would fulfill uh, would fill, fulfill my passion of doing things differently and i think that makes a difference and so i don't know if entrepreneurs i'm not entirely sure that i would say entrepreneurs are built i would just say it's something that you 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 have now you can become a great business person from being an entrepreneur uh, but you have to go through the process uh by that i mean you know you you can be you you're very fortunate to be an entrepreneur or you're very unfortunate unfortunate to be an entrepreneur because it it's a lifelong struggle to find what's passionate and to create something and those are not always successful so when you do find an opportunity to study and fortunately i did uh going to college was you, you have to learn something that's bankable in the business environment that you intend to operate and so you may be an entrepreneur but you need to build a skill set behind it whether it's accounting or 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 math or economics or understand some fundamental business issues so that you can back up your entrepreneurial spirit if that makes sense mhm yeah no to- total totally does and i think uh, it it it's interesting as an entrepreneur do you think you're ever satisfied ever happy is that something that entrepreneurs can ever quell or 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 feel like i'm there you know or is that spirit will always be burning do you think i it's always burning it's uh, you never it never comes to an end it's it's always this is so exciting i'm going to accomplish this and you accomplish that goal and you get a feeling of satisfaction hey i did this i was able to do this i was able to create this and it just continues i mean you you wake up in the morning and you think about something else and the the discipline really is to finish what you started and then understand when to call it off um so sometimes you may be really really excited about something and you're pursuing it with all the passion that you have but if you get to a point where hey you can see that it's not going to meet some of your basic needs uh, of uh, financial success or stability or growth uh, personal growth you have to be able to call it says you know what i i tried it 
I gave it my best, best shot. It was not successful. Let me do something else. Uh, and as long as you can, you can find the strength to do that. And I say, and I say strength purposefully. Um, sometimes we get caught in a circle that that's not good. Mm. But I would imagine that strength is is a experience as well, right? A lot of that would be, you don't tend to have that strength to call it. I would imagine in your first entrepreneurial or second or third venture. No, there's always failures, right? There's always failures. I remember when I was in college, one of the first things that I started was I wanted to travel. And then you always have this three months off in the summertime that you want to travel. And obviously we always want to travel afar. And I'd never been to India or Pakistan. And I said, you know, this is where I need to go. But prior to that, I said, well, I need to be able to fund this because as an entrepreneur, it's like, and as an, as an Indian entrepreneur, it's like, hey, I don't have the funds to throw away. So let me figure out how I can go to a foreign country, but at the same time, cover my expenses and make a little money, right? So what, what do you do? I mean, I was in, a, in the city of Vancouver looking around and I said, hey, you know, I need to buy some clothes. Went to some stores or selling nice shirts for $70. And I said, it's a lot of money. And you look at the labels and it's made in India. You look at other labels in other stores made in India. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense. I mean, in Vancouver, $70 made in India and I want to go to India. So I did a whole bunch of market research, drove to these boutique store owners and I said, hey, why is it that you're charging $70 for this? And they gave me the breakdown. Fortunately, some were more honest than others. And guess what? When I traveled in India, I went to the stores that manufacture. I went to stores there, found out manufacturers who were doing this. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I said, how much is it going to cost? Well, here's the thing. If they said, we can get you the same stuff at two bucks. And what am I thinking? This is hugely exciting. The differential between two bucks and $70 is hugely exciting. So I said, great. I'll connect, I, sorry, I connected with the store owners. I said, I'll get you exactly the design that you want, you, wanting, you, you, you want and I'll get it done in India and I'll bring it to you. They said, and I learned a lot about the retail trade in that respect because you have to focus a year in advance. You've got to take attention to what the discounts are, what the markups are, how they sell things. There's a lot of backend information that you needed to know. Well, so... Um, so here I am on my first deal, and uh, the timelines are very, very strict. The shop owner says, the boutique owner says, hey, this is when it needs to be delivered. Call it February the 14th for our, our summer display. Uh, well, in India, they said, of course, we'll deliver it to you on February 12th. We'll get you there. But all sorts of things go wrong. They can't find the shipment space. They can't find the cotton. They can't find the designers. They, all sorts of stuff starts to go wrong. Eventually, after a lot of struggle and taking a haircut on the prices, we get the product from India to the store owner a few weeks late. <laughs> we take a discount on that, obviously, uh, because we're late. And uh, they look great, and they're on the shelves, and we're loving it because we've got it there. Now, <laughs> so I'm calling the, the boutique owner a week later. He says, you know, John, how's it going? Have you sold stuff? He says, great, Karim. We, uh, we were able to, uh, to sell a whole bunch of things off the, off the rack. It's going great. The response has been terrific. It looks like, uh, it looks like we're going to be successful. Great. But, uh, you know, give me, give me a call next week. So, all right, cool. 
So call the guy next week. He says, dude, you got to come and pick up all your stuff. And I said, what the hell? What, what happened? What went wrong? He says, the design was great. The cotton was great. The colors were great. He says, the only problem at that time during those years in the late 80s, there was this, uh, the, the fashion was to embroider either the collar or the sleeves or whatever, right? So what they'd forgotten to do in India was they'd forgotten to pre-shrink the cotton thread that they were using on the embroidery. So as soon as you put that shirt into the washing machine, guess what? It shrunk the embroidery cotton and destroyed the shirt. And that's all it took. We were done. So um, that's a failure. Uh, but what it shows you, and this is one of several uh, failures, but it, what it shows you is research is important. Uh, you have to get down to the nitty gritty of any business you want to do. Um, then you have to pay attention to the details and be ready to execute. Uh, so this is this is just one example of what it takes. There is a spectrum of information, data, and delivery and execution that you need as an entrepreneur. As, as an entrepreneur, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and just even with that example, I'm sure there's plenty of others, as you said. When you reflect back on it at the time, did you is that is that a very active effort? Did you write down all the things that went right, all the things that went wrong? How did you document it? How did you kind of internalize that so that you don't forget some of those things? In project management, we'd call it a lessons learned. I don't know what what's your what was your process there? It's it's a that's a that's an interestingly good question because uh, if you were to ask my friends around me, tradition they would say, "Karim, you have a terrible memory for names and places and 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 the food that you've eaten and the movies that you watched or the music you listen to." And, and I have a, that's true. I have a terrible memory for all of those things, but I can, I don't forget details of businesses that I've tried to create or been, or been creating. I, I, it's just something that sticks in my mind and I can rem- remember all of those details without having to write them down, which is weird, but it's true. Mm-hmm. So you have a great memory for that. Okay. So maybe the for things that. that, the things that don't work out so well, maybe stick in the mind better than some of the things yeah. that do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> the, the pain, the cut, it cuts deeper. Uh, I, I know that feeling as well. So I did interrupt early on, you were going to Vancouver, but just to understand what you studied, because you talk about being an entrepreneur, but needing that backup, that understanding, that kind of skill set that you can have as a backup. What did you kind of dive into then? So having grown up in Kenya, uh, uh, that's on the East African coast, uh, the, the people around me were, were business people. And there was a huge um, opportunity. Uh, you know, East Africa was, was recently starting to collaborate with each other in terms of country to country import and exports. Um, there was a lot of manufacturing that was starting to come online. So I figured, okay, if I'm going to study something, let me study something that would be beneficial to, to, to me and to get a job when I got back to Kenya. So I thought, all right, what, what am I going to learn? I, I chose the field of economics and a specialization in international trade and finance. Uh, so that's what I studied in college. And it was fascinating uh, to be able to see how money moved and when money moved, what it meant, uh, what it could do, what it couldn't do. And uh, how to how to think uh, in terms of this is the cost of money today. This is what it can buy. But if you're doing it across boundaries, what it means into to forex forex exchanges to being able to get products on the ship and working on the insurance and 
And so it was it was fascinating for me because this was some concrete work that I was doing in terms of ac- academics that was going to be play a very important part in my business life when I was back in Kenya. And that's and that's what I chose to study. Something that was practical. Very very interesting. And no doubt it obviously helped with the entrepreneurial angle as well. Because even just talking about your first foray there with the purchasing the shirts, you know, it's international trade in a way. There's there's all sorts of factors and elements of that. So it probably is just helping put more structure behind it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I say entrepreneurs if you're going to build a business, you have to have some sort of academic discipline behind you that's going to support it. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. Mm, very good. So where did the investment angle start to form? How did you start getting into looking at investing? So as a young lad uh, out of university, you know, all the things that you think about, it's like, oh, I'm going to do, uh, yeah, I'm going to become a banker. So I went back to Kenya, started my training program in a bank, obviously spent six six months there. I was bored out of my mind. It was like a desk job and I had to like uh, look at accounts and, and spreadsheets and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is not for me. And I, I, I said to myself, what is it that I want to do? So I tried, you know, I worked with the tour industry, became a tour guide for, for several months. And that was fun and exciting, but, you know, it wasn't really paying the bills. Uh, and interestingly enough, what happened at that time was uh, one of uh, the, in Tanzania, which is the country south of, of Kenya, East Africa, there was a gold mine that was starting to uh, to open up, and this was the time when Tanzania was releasing its uh, social uh, social politics from the socialist government to a more democratic democratic government. And uh, there was a bunch of Canadians who were geologists coming into into Tanzania to open a gold mine. I mean, figure that out. Whatever whatever the case was, hey, I, one of my buddies from from that time connected me with these guys and says, "Hey, why don't you?" Uh, help these guys out because they're foreign. They don't know what they're doing. They're opening a gold mine, and uh, and uh, you've got you know the African background. So I said, all right, fine. And I said, well, well, they can't really pay you because they're a startup company. I said, well, okay, what do I get? So well, what they'll do is you, you can go. They'll have a house for you. They'll have food for you to eat. And if they're successful, you'll get you know maybe some gold. <laughs> okay. I said, all right. Good I don't know what that really means, but hey, okay, uh, let, let's try it out. And that's how I started. It was like, that's what happened. I went and ran this gold mine for two years uh, with these other folks. And we started producing our first nuggets of gold or gold bars. And that's how I got paid. I mean, it's not literally gold bars, but you know, they gave me equity in the company. And all of a sudden I start to realize what it means to be an investor. You can do two things. If you don't have the money, then you're doing your, your investment strategy through sweat equity. And that's what I did. And fortunately for me, that turned out to be really good and uh, make some money. Out. Uh, so that paid for some bills. But that's how my investment process started, uh, which was sweat equity. Uh, Very interesting. An interesting start and, and one that obviously paid off um, fr- from there. You got the bug. Would that be fair to say you've got a kind of a you got you got pulled into that and that that kind of escalated from there? Yeah. So um, you know, a success success is a is 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 like a drug, right? So, in terms of success, you you've got to be able to understand how to measure it. So, obviously, when we're younger, it's like, and, and this is one of the takeaway lessons, right? So, 
I'm just out of school a year, year and a half maybe. I've got into this gold mine, spent two years working at it. And all the, at that age, all of us youngsters, we want to be millionaires. And I'm no different. I wanted to be a millionaire. Um, and two years for me, by the when I walked away from that experience, uh, okay, so I made a little bit of money, which is not something even to write home about. But but if you want to define success, is the ability to walk away from something or see something and take away the lessons that you've learned and how to operate something, how to survive in a very remote environment, how to, uh, how to deal with different characters, nationalities, uh, idiosyncrasies, uh, um, disasters. I mean, we were building huts out of mud, building roads and, and fighting of cobras in your tent. I mean, success is being able to walk away from that still alive, right? And if you start to put success in terms of the things that you've learned, that things that give you a strength to continue, it's way better than pegging it to, to, to a dollar amount. So if I said, hey, did I make a million dollars? Was I successful? No, I didn't. Was I successful? Yes, but not in those terms. So I got back and I said, hey, this is really exciting. I love doing what I do. I know I'm good at it. I know I can do something. I can operate in, in various circumstances. So I started the first Tex-Mex wrestling in Kenya. And because uh, I knew I could do it. Well, I still didn't have any money, but what, what did I do? What did I have at that point? I had some great relationships and I had the confidence about me and people trusted who I was. And I went to my friends and I said, guys, I want to start a Tex-Mex restaurant. I want to start a restaurant. I need for you to help me out. Give me, give me kitchen equipment on credit. Give me supplies of alcohol on credit. I'll pay you and I'll pay you with interest. And this is the timeline. And, and we did these deals. And that's how I started my first business in, in Kenya. It was a Tex-Mex restaurant. And we made money from that. Now, that was good. And, um, but the second business that we did, the second restaurant that we did, where the first of its kind in Kenya, was uh, a wraps and smoothie bar. Well, I lost my shirt on that. Because, because it didn't work. Um, mm. It's fascinating. You persevere, yeah. Is it like just love hearing the stories and you know going from selling shirts to losing your shirt, as you said there. <laughs> uh, is uh, but like it looks like there's a no fear um, approach in what you're doing. Would that be fair to say? Was it was what's your relationship with fear in those days? Has it changed? Yeah, you know, when you're young and unattached, uh, there is no fear. Um, when you're a little bit older and have responsibilities of wife and kids, the fear sets in um, because you have to pay, right? Uh, there, are, there are obligations. There's the mortgage payment. There's the, the kids' education payment. There's all sorts of payments. And uh, during those years and for many years in between, <laughs> I actually had to take a steady job with, that provided a paycheck. And I did that for several years when I uh, moved to the U S for the first time in 2000 is I was, you know, a a working guy for, uh, for 10 years. And, um, but I was fortunate, but I was fortunate because what happened in those 10 years, I was working in uh, for two, uh, two different publicly traded companies at that time. And I was in enterprise sales and, um, and you had to choose a vertical in which to sell whatever, you know, the services that we were selling. And so I chose the vertical of 
of early stage startup businesses. Uh, that's the uh, the bucket I chose to sell into. And I again, again, it goes back to my roots. I, I understood that I understood how early stage businesses work uh, in when I was growing up in Kenya because of my experience and what I did. And I got the opportunity when I moved to the U.S. to understand that I could I could work in that sector, but uh, as a consultant, as a sales consultant, and I chose that vertical. And so I got to meet a lot of startup companies, a lot of entrepreneurs. I also got to meet a lot of their investors, uh, whether it's angel investors or, or VCs or, or private equity. I met a lot of those people. And I started, it took me a long time, but I started to understand the, the psychology and the psychology of the entrepreneurs matched some of mine and the psychology of the investors was not something I was so familiar with. So I got to know what that looked, looked like. Yeah. Mm. And maybe now is the right time to ask that. Like, so I did want to get to psychology of, of investors versus entrepreneurs. And, and all the while the question was, in my mind, is there a huge difference between an entrepreneur and an investor at, 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 at different levels or layers now that you see both? How, how are they different? So that's a really, really, really good question. So it goes back to whose money are you investing and why? And so we can get, we can touch the entrepreneur section after this, uh, if you can remind me, but the the psychology of the investor is entirely different um, at every stage. Uh, If you're an angel investor, uh, it means you're investing your own funds into an entrepreneur or a startup. And there are different reasons why angels do that. Their angels will do that because it's a business they like or the entrepreneurs they're passionate about or it's something that they're very familiar with and they want to be able to help these entrepreneurs. And oftentimes it's just like, hey, I, I've been successful in my business. I've been successful in my past. I like what you're doing. I like who you are. I'm going to invest in your company. So sometimes that's not so rational. It's just because you want to do it. Uh, it's not a rational thought, except it gives you pleasure and, and, and hopefully the, the investor can help these companies. And then you've got the institutional investors who are investing other people's money, like, you know, typical VC is investing somebody else's money. And, and that somebody else is a larger investor, right? Or ordinarily a private equity group or or a very large bank, or or a, or a fund uh, of funds, uh, and they invite uh, they invest in the in the in the venture company in hopes for a return. It's like a chain reaction. I've got lots of money, who be, which belongs to somebody else. I'm expected to provide a return, and that flows downhill, right? So you find a VC that who's addressing a target sector that is interesting to the large investors called. Uh, you know, call it a private equity firm. And so there's there's this chain of responsibility that goes, uh, that goes, that continues that path. And the deliverables uh, are based on what the outcome is. It's like, hey, we intend to receive, you know, 10% or 15% or, or, you know, 4x our money. And those are different kind of investors who are investing in, in an environment or a market or business model uh, that suits uh, their other investors, mm. and and the the second one, obviously not the angel, but the more the VC investments, is are they typically done? Like you said, there, I'm investing X for Y and expecting X 
percent return that the terms of those sort of investments or are they like like any investment when i'm putting in you know 10 grand into a managed fund uh through through some sort of financial broker that, that just uh, let's sit sit there it can go up and go down like are, are some of the deals of those uh, vc investments kind of guaranteeing x amount after a period of time or how does that get well, structured Yes, they they uh, it, it's all it's all about the pitch, right? So uh, I'm a VC company and I'm looking to raise funds. I go large to the people with the deeper pockets and say, "Hey, I'm investing in uh, in this call it blockchain or artificial intelligence or fintech. We're investors in that marketplace, and if you look at the market as a whole, and, and this is how they'll break." Down. If you look at, let's choose fintech, for example, if you choose the fintech market space as a whole and you look at the number of dollars that have gone into that space, um, for the sake of argument, it's like, let's call it $1 billion. And if you look at the return uh, to those investors over a period of five years, you know, you can say it's like five times. As an example, you can't guarantee anything, uh, but you sort of suggest from sort of trends. Now, that's a big number spread across many sorts of investors, spread across many sorts of companies. And as you start to layer it down, what happens is, well, we're going to also, as I'm speaking as a, as a let's say, as, as a venture capitalist, my company, for example, will say, hey, we're going to invest in fintech that's directly related to peer-to-peer processing. If you look at that marketplace, uh, we have experts in our group that understand that marketplace. So we're looking to raise $100 million based on what we see in the market. The expectation is that we will give you three times your money in the next five years. So it's a generalization of what they think they can do. And then we're, and, and as a company, you're supposed to execute on that now. Uh, you raise $100 million, you obviously don't give it to one company, you spread that across the board, and hopefully, one, two, three, four, five companies uh, give you some great exponential return. So your averages sort of meet what you've projected you'll do. And 95% of the companies that you invested in, you know, are failures with that. Who cares about that? It's because you made your number. Anyway, so it's a very complicated process. So there's no guarantees. It's like based on assumptions. Okay, interesting. When somebody's listening to this that may have, you know, not a huge amount of experience in this area, probably me included, they're thinking maybe how much do I um, how can I invest a small amount, a middle-sized amount, like do I need a large amount of money to invest in into this or and even on the other angle, back to the angel investor, does somebody become an angel investor with ten thousand dollars to invest or is there certain you know amounts that would make them more prone to be an angel investor versus the other option yeah so different countries have different requirements and regulations on how uh investors can invest in the company um so for example in the u.s we have a term called accredited accredited investor accredited investor or professional investor. And we're still talking about the angel groups. Uh, So that individual would have to have, as an example, a net worth of a million dollars excluding their their house. So if you've got a million dollars that you can play with, so to speak, uh, you become, you can uh, get get certified as as an accredited investor. 
And so you then start to invest portions of your funds in companies, uh, you know, that you're willing to support. And the expectation is that you'll get some sort of return. Now, if you look at the global marketplace, the global marketplace, there are about, if you look at the numbers, there are about 45 million accredited investors. The current number of investors that are accredited that are actually playing in this marketplace is in the range of about a million. Um, and this is globally. Uh, you know, the numbers changed drastically. I mean, that number would have been different three months ago and <laughs> different today for sure. And might change in the next three to six months uh, up or down, depending on w- what the market looks like. If you then start to look at how I perhaps started off, which was I had no money, uh, but I was interested in investing. I started with the sweat equity. I identified something or a product or a group of people that I was really interested in working with. And as an entrepreneur, I was willing to, to do the work for free with the, with the hope and promise that I'd get something out of it. So in my role as being a general manager or business development or, or enterprise sales, uh, that's the role I played. Three or four companies in my early days. Uh, for the gold company, it was the general manager. For the, uh, for the, the, the restaurant, it was the entrepreneur and, and founder. And for the companies that I started off with in the States, it was business development development or sales. And I said, Hey, I really like what you do. I know you're raising a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. I do have enough to survive on my own. So I don't need a salary, but I'll work for you for you know six months. And if, if we're successful, then I, this is my expectation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's like a, a full equity. I, I, it's sweat equity. I'm just putting all my time and effort to make this happen. And as you progress down that path, you don't want to not necessarily want to spend all your time with one company. And by this time you've hopefully you made a little bit of money, maybe it's $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 that you can play with or afford to lose. And you still, then you identify partners and uh, companies and, who, and founders who are raising smaller amounts to, uh, to build a company and says, Hey, look, uh, I'd like to invest $10,000. That's all I have. What I'll do is I'll do some of a cash investment so that, you know, I'm committed and I believe what you do. I'll do a portion of equity investment, which is I'll spend time and effort helping you build the company, whether if you're a technologist, that's what you spend time on or a marketer or business development. And you exchange your time for equity in the company. And so you can spread your time a little bit more with two or three companies. And that's what I did for, for many years was like, I put a little bit of money into it and put my time into, into that company as well, well as others. So you can, there are different ways to do it. It just, uh, and, you know, ordinarily, most people start off this way. They already have a full-time job that's paying them reasonably well. But you want to dabble with this because it's, exci- it's exciting and, and gets your blood going. So that's how, that's how I started and that's what I did. Hmm. And just on that one, how does one find a company to approach and say, I'll offer some sweat equity in it? Is that true? through connections is there you know a site online that i can go to looking for organizations that are in startup phase to say they're looking for some support but it's only sweat equity potential equity coming 
So that's a that's a good question. So generally, I, I mean, I was fortunate because the companies that I was working with uh, uh, as a salary employee and the vertical I chose to sell in was the startup uh, business area, right? So, uh, so I was lucky. I could see a lot of companies um, that were interesting in my day-to-day job. Uh, so that was really interesting. And, and, and I, I picked, I managed to build relationships with both the investor side and the entrepreneur side during my, jet, my day job. So it was a dream. I mean, if you want to call that success, that's, yeah, it is a success. I was very fortunate in being able to land a job like that. Um, but if you, obviously there are sites, like if you go to AngelList, uh, you'll see a whole bunch of companies listed there It's uh, and what they're doing and who they are. And sometimes if you find a company that's interesting, that's within your wheelhouse in terms of either geography or, or you look at the founders and you sort of uh, resonate with their background, I mean, you can always reach out to them and say, hey, this is something that I see you're doing. And if you look at the how successful they've been or how much money they raised or how much they're trying to raise, there's always a way to get to them. Um, that can motivate them to have a conversation with it, right? Just depending on, on who you are and what you have to offer. So AngelList has been around for a long time and they've got a good uh, good repository of companies that are building things. Uh, and there are, there are a few others, but yeah, you could do it either way. So if you're going to do it uh, online, that's something to look at. There are other companies that do the same that are listing startup companies. I mean, linked to the company I work with now is doing this on a global level, which is, hey, we're identifying investors and entrepreneurs on a global on a global level so that the interaction between the investors and entrepreneurs are, are, are not limited by boundaries. Um, but it, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is actually go to areas like what we find in San Francisco, which is, as you know, the hotbed for startups and was, and we'll see what happens in, by summer or fall, given the COVID crisis. But ordinarily, what what people do here, which is very different from the East Coast where I used to be, is you can walk to practically any bar or restaurant uh, during happy hour, and there will be groups of people talking about their businesses, either pitching their business, looking for funding, talking to other people about their business. And you, and, and that's how you pick up information and meet people. It's really, really much easier here uh, because of the culture and the vibe. Um, interestingly enough, uh, when I was traveling in Southern Europe um, last summer, what I had the opportunity to do was go to a lot of uh, co-working spaces in, in, in Portugal, in Madrid, in Italy, um, and you meet entrepreneurs and business owners right there. Yeah, uh, and so that's how you interact with them. Sure, and and I guess to the point of co-worker spaces at the moment is, is taking a hit with COVID nineteen and you know the the pandemic that that we're hit as well. So yeah, that's that's taking. I mean, that whole scenario is going to change. That whole scenario is has changed and will change. I think mm. um, in the next little while, mm. significant significantly actually. Yeah. So just to bring it to to the now then and the times we're living in. How has even the last few months changed how you look at the world, how you think about investing, how people you're talking to in in the space of investing, how the whole paradigm has changed literally over the last few weeks? I'd love to hear what uh, what life and what, what your views are on all of that right now. So this actually is quite dramatic, uh, quite dramatic. 
uh, and there's certain conferences that make this probably a, a once in a lifetime event. I mean, the whole world, I mean, take a step back and look at this. The whole world shut down collectively within three weeks of each other from China, Australia to the US. Collectively within three weeks, the whole world shut down and shut down in the sense that there was no more travel. There were no more meetings. There's no interaction of people uh, in real time, in real life ways. All of a sudden, um, the stock market takes a huge tumble. Your uh, apparent wealth has disappeared. Your customers have disappeared. Your revenue has disappeared. You are still, you're still, you've still got your leases of office space. You don't know where your employees are and how productive they are. All of a sudden, they have to be at home. So this, the confluences of what's happened is so dramatic that, and the time of, I call it sit, uh, stay in place. The stay in place is extended for such a period of time. I think it'll be 30 to 40 days before we can actually start to see other people. And that has enacted a change in behavior, right? 30 to 40 days of a an environment where you have to do things differently. It's our meeting here. It's what your customers expect from you, where their wealth has gone, where the entrepreneur's wealth has gone, where their team has gone. Has, is completely is completely going to define the future. People who were rich or apparently rich 60 days ago suddenly have, you know, 30 to 50% less because the stock market stacked. Uh, as an investor, if you invested hundred, two, three hundred, four, $500,000 as an angel investor in startup companies, well, guess what? Um, if one of them survives, survives, not even make any money, if they survive to continue to exist, you'll be lucky. So look at this change. You, uh, as, a, as a super angel, which is a super angel, someone who's invested a lot of money across a bunch of companies. Uh, if you're a super angel and you've invested in 20 companies, at, you know, call it $100,000 as an example, it's $2 million that you put out there in 20 companies and they all shut down, well, guess what? You don't have $2 million. Even if you were hoping for one of them to survive and make some money, let's, that no longer exists. Let's assume you have one company that survives and is sort of on the, on, on the verge of surviving and barely eking out a revenue to pay its employees. Well, how long is that going to take before they turn into a sellable company? That's just one aspect. Think about the professional institutional investors who have deployed hundreds of millions of dollars. Funnily enough, the statistics are the same. One out of 10 companies in the angel environment will survive. One out of 10 companies in the institutional, maybe two companies in the institutional environment will survive. So the statistics are the same. This angel investors lost $2 million. The super institutional investors lost $200 million. Um, and those companies shut down. So, I mean, there's a confluence of things. I mean, before before 30 days ago, 
there was a lot of money sloshing around in the market. People felt they were wealthy and were spending money before they actually really had it. Um, and now they won't have that. So, so, <clears throat> so what do you do? Um, a lot of jobs going to be lost. A lot of companies going to be shut down. A lot of wealth is going to disappear. Uh, the only companies that uh, are going to survive are companies that either had started to move towards a um, a digital environment uh, and have created an environment where they understand who their customers are. They understand how to respond to their customers and how to monetize on uh, and understand the supply chain so they could monetize on what they do. Companies that understood that, I mean, take Amazon, for example, who understands who their customers are, understand the supply chain logistics, understand what the payment infrastructure looks like, understands the delivery model, how to get the product from one, one area to another area, understands what the customers want, understands what the future patterns of consumer behavior are. They're likely to succeed huge time but other companies who haven't done this or don't have not paid attention they're not going to exist and if you are in existence in some way well you need to change to understand and the term is what this digital transformation means what does this mean to your company can can you execute it so that you can survive and make some money so it's today survival is key making money that'll happen later but survive today is the important part Mm. And and so those are some of the factors. If if somebody's listening that are you know wanting to know a bit more about how to invest in the now market or even in the in the near term, they need to be just I suppose looking at the likes of Amazon. These that have digitally transformed very well. What other any other key factors that you're looking at as somebody who's focusing on investing in this world, right? As I said, six months ago, three months ago, you probably never thought about some of these factors as much, but what are the other things you're thinking about very much now? So, so what's really interesting, you know, we were looking at digital transformation three or four years ago. Digital transformation was the ability for customer, for companies to innovate on their backend technology to understand the customers, use AI and chatbots to speak with their customers, and then affect transactions through a fintech technology uh, platform and understand the supply chain. I mean, we've been we've been looking at this. Uh, generally, as investors have been looking at how quickly large size companies are going through digital transformation, and there's this you know there's been papers and papers written on it on what the process needs to look like. Understand who you who your employees are, understand how they're going to react, understand what your clients are and how they're going to react, understand the technologies that exist and how that's going to function within your environment, understand the cost. You know, the, there was a process and a methodology that existed in place that now has completely left the park. I mean, you, uh, there is no time now. There is no time for you to think through and experiment you need to pay attention to it right now and execute on these models that are going to improve everything that you do in your businesses, retain your clients, um, find more, reduce your costs, and understand your customers and keep them. So when we start to look at companies, we try to see how and how quickly they're adopting to change because 
this environment will change, has changed people and has changed behavior. The other thing you'll start to, that we're starting to see now and we have to pay attention to is under times of stress like this, teams break down. Um, if you don't have the strength uh, and the guts and you, you don't do well under stressful environments, your team's broken down right now. So it's vitally important uh, to understand how the teams work under pressure because the pressure will continue in a different format. You know, COVID will end, uh, stay at home will end. Uh, there'll be some ease of restrictions, but the stress will just continue in a different format, right? There'll be stress of sales, stress of revenue, stress, stress of ad- uh, adoption of, of uh, technology and engineers by heart, you know, the, don't like new technologies, especially if they're if it's something that they're used to developing. They don't like new things because it's because they feel obsolete all of a sudden if you bring in things new. Uh, so you have to look at how the team functions uh, under under moments like this. Mm, fascinating, and and just on that, that that part, as you're looking at potential companies to invest in, do you take culture into it? How do you assess culture of of that startup or? What the I suppose what the essence of the the startup is about. How do you look at that? When we talk about culture, there are two types of culture to look to look at. And for me, uh, being the chief strategy officer for Lintu, I have to look at two different aspects. Uh, we have to when we look at companies, we look at their internal culture, uh, which is how do the teams function, how do they function together, and how are they reacting, how are they building, how are they developing together. Because of our platform, which is a global platform, we have to look at also the culture of the environment that you intend to be in. Um, So if you're selling to a different country or a different geographical region, we look at that culture holistically, Uh, not only as an entrepreneur, but you also look at the culture of the investor because they're different people. Uh, They'll look at different metrics. They'll look at different they'll look at different ways uh, things are being presented. Um, And the entrepreneur needs to understand that, especially if they're raising funds, right? If you're born in the U.S. and you live on the West Coast, California, and you've constantly met Californian investors as an entrepreneur, you start to understand their body language a little bit when you're having conversation with them. Well, guess what? There is no body language if you're doing this virtually. That's one thing. So you have to be better at that. Second, if you're now presenting to investors on the East Coast, Boston, New York, and you've moved further across field, uh, you go to London or Europe, or you can go the other way and go to, to Australia and Hong Kong and Japan and China, all of those nuances of culture, communication, response, body language, and words have a different meaning. So when we start to look at the entrepreneur who's raising funds and the business model that they're involved in, we have to understand how they respond and understand international environments. And we have to look at investors and understand how they respond to international entrepreneurs. So it's it's a tricky, it, it just complicates things a little bit more, but it's at the same token very, very exciting because if we have a company here in the U.S. who's come to our platform to raise funds from Australia because 
you know, it's important to them to be in the Australian market. Well, guess what? They are able to find Australian investors. And by doing that, they're able to find champions in Australia. Because if you're an investor in Australia, you want to help that company succeed. So you're going to bring them to Australia. So, yeah, we've got a great opportunity to, to get the world closer with what we're doing. But we have to, look, we have to be very careful how we, we execute on this. Fascinating stuff. So you have virtual investor conferences coming up. Maybe talk to me a little bit about how they'll work and how people can potentially connect into them. Yes. So we have uh, a global uh, invest, virtual investors uh, event um, on the 29th of this month. And, uh, you know, we've got over close to 300 people already registered. We've got 12 companies that we've vetted to present at this enver- uh, environment. Uh, so we're going to have an event starts at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, Pacific time ends at five Pacific time. We'll have companies from various parts of the world presenting to raise funds from, uh, from, uh, from investors from different parts of the world. So we've got about 30, 30, Countries covered uh, in terms of investor participation, and we've got 12 companies that are dealing with products that are valuable internationally as well as locally. And you register. I mean, you you you, you know you can find that you can find information if you just go to my LinkedIn site, or uh, so my name's again Karim Nurani. Uh, just find me on LinkedIn or on uh, Twitter at K Nurani or the website LinkedIn. Uh, you find all the information there. Um, obviously, it might be too late for you to, and by the time this gets out, probably too late for that one, but we'll have another one. We'll have another global investor network. So uh, if this is up by then, you, you know, that's, that's somewhere they should, they should visit. Definitely include links in the, in the show notes as well for folks to, to reach out to you, Kareem. So we have flew through nearly an hour there, which was a fascinating, fast hour for me. It's the last hour of my day as well. As I was listening to you, Karim, so many interesting things. I had probably another 20 questions I could have dived into here. Maybe we can do another one because I think there's a lot more to <laughs> to you than what we've covered. And uh, just as you look back on your career so far, interested in kind of re- retrospectives, what role or what, what uh, position was the one that stood out for you most that you most enjoyed that you got that you mentioned success a lot what was the one that you took the most success from do you think i really really enjoy what i do today um because it what it's done is it's allowed me to uh use my accumulated experiences uh of being international of being an investor of being an entrepreneur of being an employee of a of a company it's allowed me to assimilate these experiences that I've had over the many years of work life and to put it together on, on this global environment. Um, you know, and, and we touch again on the question that you brought up earlier, success. Success is how you define it. And for me, every morning that I get up and I'm excited about what I'm doing, I'm successful. I'm being, I'm happy, and I'm. That's a criteria for success. If I can keep doing what makes me happy, I'm successful. Hmm. I can definitely detect the energy and uh, the excitement from you in the last hour. It's very infectious. So uh, it was great, great to chat with you, Kareem. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to to sharing this one. Thanks for giving up an hour of your time. 
Thank you, Rob. This has been a pleasure. I hope to, we will connect again soon. Uh, if you have uh, folks that are interested in having a conversation with you, uh, let them reach out. Uh, tell me why, and uh, you know, I can I, I can walk them through uh, things that they might want to learn, or just you know, take a, take a take a moment or two to uh, to to hear them out, so to speak. Very good. No, I'll, I'll absolutely uh, encourage folks to do that with links in the notes. So thanks again. Thank you, Rob. Hey folks, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, could you please consider helping me extend the reach of the podcast that a little bit further? You can do that in a number of ways. The number one way is to subscribe on your app of choice. This helps me with the chart ranking, leading to more folks stumbling across the podcast and checking it out. You could also repost it on your social media channels. Any of them would be great. And maybe even tell a friend in person or over the phone. Pick up the phone, give them a call and tell them about the 1% Better podcast. Tell them about this episode or one that you've heard in the past. And it will do. I would really appreciate it. In the last year, we set up a 1% Better Slack community, which you can join for free. And interact with me and other members of the community and improve through holding each other accountable and sharing monthly challenges. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. I'm into season four of this incredible journey and the more of these interviews and solo shows that I research, record and share, the better I believe that they get and more loaded with actionable takeaways that you can learn from. I know I've learned so much from it so far and it's always really, really fulfilling and rewarding when I hear from you on what you took from it. So do reach out, rob at robofthegreen.ie. And of everybody that listens, 90% listen and enjoy, but only around 10% actually take action, write down takeaways and put them into practice. I am convinced that if we can move that number a bit higher, the listeners will not only make steps forward towards their goals, but they will be more fulfilled and happy and better. Change doesn't happen overnight. It is hard, but it's all about taking the first step, whatever that is for you. You can absolutely do this. Make a plan, be deliberate, take action. Don't overreach. Start with those small incremental improvements and over time you will see great progress. It's all in the pursuit of betterness. So again, thank you so much for listening. Good luck and stay safe.